Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and future. I'm Dr. Jody, and as an anxiety expert and adult child and adolescent doctor of clinical psychology, I'm on a mission to create a world where every person can manage anxiety and thrive. Over the last 30 years, I've coached global organizations and worked across clinical and educational settings, including Harvard Medical School. In 2015, I founded The Anxiety Clinic with a purpose to help adults, kids and teens to overcome anxiety, stress, behavioral challenges, low mood and burnout and live life with happiness and well-being. As a keynote speaker and executive coach, I love to help individuals, leaders and teams to master their mindset, enhance well-being and achieve resilient high performance. I also share my knowledge in my best-selling book, The Mind Strength Method, Four Steps to Curb Anxiety, Conquer Worry and Build Resilience. Join me as I go in session with celebrities, elite athletes, and business leaders to find out how they've leveraged the superpower of anxiety, risen above challenges, and aligned to passion and purpose. Mark Wales, it's such a joy to connect with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Good to see you, buddy. How you been? Good. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Last time I saw you was, I think, during the K2 talk we were doing, right? Like it was a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Our man, Cohen Ray, a pretty amazing uh, man in terms of the world of high performance and helping people to flourish and thrive. So it was great to connect with you through Kerwin. And uh, I think, you know, as far as chemistry and alignment, yeah, it was just you and everything that you stand for. It was just an immediate positive connection. So it's great to be doing some further work together. Tell me what's going on in your life at the moment, Mark. I've been back in Victoria and... Really, while I've been here, it's just been, I guess, recovering from survival. It took quite a while to kind of come back to full health. Uh, well, I finished filming that maybe about eight or nine months ago. So, finished filming that, been re- recovering, doing some talks, and looking forward to, to next year and some of the projects that we got on there. So, you've been surviving post survivor, yeah? <laughs> yeah? It's the hardest bit. <laughs> it's the hardest. Bringing your health back to normal, yeah. Oh, 100%. So, what have been some of the strategies that you've been using to get yourself back into, into gear post survivor? Well, the big thing was, is I think, adjusting expectations and realizing it wasn't going to be a fast process. I think I thought it might be a few months, and then I was like, oh no, it's going to take a long time. I think it took probably more than six months before I. Was, was back to kind of normal. Tell us a little bit about your survivor experience. I'm sure you've been talking lots about it, but what an incredible ride. I um, really enjoyed following your journey there. We'd love to hear some of the highlights. I met my wife on it in 2017 and we didn't really expect to go back necessarily. You always hope maybe you get another shot, but we had kind of given up on it. And then out of the blue, they called us and said, oh, we're doing this new theme and we think it might be good alignment with you. And of course, we wanted to do it. So we, we trained up for it, had a, had a good idea of how we wanted to play and then, and then went on. And we were away for about eight weeks, actually. And we had to leave our boy at home, which was really hard. Mm. But, um, you know, because of that, we decided we'd, we'd play hard. And uh, it just so happened that we were able to maneuver our way through to the, through to the end, which was a great result. <laughs> 
Amazing. And, you know, in the world of high performance and you're just smashing it in uh, survivor mode, what do you think were the key strategies, the key tips to embrace high performance in such a competitive context there? Yeah, I was going to say the first one was having a clear sense of why you're doing something, having that really clear sense of mission. I didn't really have it first time I played, but second time we had a much clearer idea of what we're trying to achieve. And that's good because then you can ignore everything that's not relevant to it. Um, and that just means you can focus your efforts a bit better. The other thing was, is really trying to keep your composure when you're in uh, a tough situation. I think if you can do that, you're going to keep that kind of more advanced part of your brain thinking for you rather than the, uh, you know, less, less rational part. So I think by doing that, by trying to just stay calm and accept that, you know, oh, we could get voted out at any point. It's not really a big deal. It's just a game. I think just keeping that level of calm was, was helpful and just, um, navigating ahead. Wow, there's such incredible tips and, you know, they're really superpower tips, alignment to purpose and being able to stand up to fight or flight and re-engage that strategic brain. Easy to say, not so easy to do. And especially for individuals who experience anxiety where that amygdala just wants to hijack and take over um, and throw us into all sorts of fight or flight and reactive stuff. <laughs> yep. What are your strategies? Because you've faced really threatening, like not just perceived threat, but real threat. So you must be a master of being able to take yourself out of that fight or flight part of your brain. How do you do it? Probably one of the biggest skills they try and train, and they do it through kind of gradual exposure to, to high level stress, is just that ability to keep your mind calm. And I think for me, a big part of it is breathing. Really trying to slow down your breathing, take deep breaths. Because as you get scared, and I used to have this, your chest tightens up, you take shallower breaths, and that's your body just getting into its you know fight and flight mode. Mm. And just trying to overcome that is is hard to do on its own. I used to get really terrified. We'd, a couple of times we were flying into what I knew would be a, a battle, and my mm. chest was just getting tighter and tighter. And I had to tell myself, like, just calm down, just breathe, you're fine. So taking us back to your days in the military and some of these really life-threatening situations and leveraging those skills and the tools that you establish for the survivor. Survivor's kind of a walk in the park in comparison, potentially. <laughs> so tell, tell us about the breath because there's lots of different versions of re-engaging, you know, taking yourself out of the sympathetic nervous system and re-engaging that parasympathetic nervous system. What are the, the breath strategies specifically? You talked about slowing the breathing down, but what do they teach you in the military that's the, the, the quintessential kind of the best way to do that? Uh, they had, I think it was a four count breathing. I think they told us like into the count of four, hold for four, out for four. Or I've heard it called box breathing. Mm. Uh, I found that was hard to follow, but the concept is still really good. And that is that you're slowing down your, your rate of uh, your respiration rate. You're trying to calm yourself down. Just it worked quite well. But the concept of more conscious breathing, I guess, is, is what they were trying to impart to us. Mm. And even even later on, when I went to the corporate sector, there'd be certain high pressure things that you know might be a meeting I had to present for or something, and I would find the same thing. I would get really nervous about it, and I'd just try that breathing. And even keynote speaking, I, for years, really, I got quite nervous before keynote speaking. Yeah. And so, I think keeping that conscious breathing really helped. Yeah, and so if we talk about the superpower of anxiety, and you know, the care factor at play that 
wanting everything to go well. Keynote speaking is a really wonderful example of that. And to hear you, Mark Wales, getting nervous, it's kind of like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in that onstage context. So if you take yourself to a particular time where you were delivering a keynote and I've had the absolute pleasure of listening and watching you on stage and you just do it so magnificently. Can you think about the last time those nerves showed up? Is there an event that kind of comes to mind? There's not one event that comes to mind, but funnily enough, it's actually, I find it harder in more intimate settings or, or it's you're much more visible in a small setting. If you're in, you know, if you're talking to a couple of hundred people or four or 500 people, you are just a figure on stage and it's not quite as intimate. I think in smaller rooms with a smaller crowd and they're generally pretty high caliber folks, um, that can be quite hard because you know you're on, the, you're on the hook at that point. You're trying to, um, trying to deliver something well. So uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can remember just getting, about to go on and I'm trying to like calm down because you want the first part of your presentation to go well because it sets the tone for the rest. So I'm just trying to keep mm-hmm. myself calm for that first bit. Absolutely. It really does. It, it, you kind of get into this flow state once you're up there. If you think about what are some of the worry thoughts that are going on prior to going on stage, what are some of the thoughts that can kind of try to bowl us over and kick that fight or flight into gear? Any things that come to mind? Some for me revolved around, I, I, don't, I may not be qualified to do this or I shouldn't be up here talking about this. This is personal stuff. I think just those fears about, about being vulnerable in front of a crowd can be quite scary. But I think I got better at speaking when I stopped, when I realized that this actually isn't about me at all. It's about who you can help in the crowd and how you can just change someone's, someone who might be having a bad time. You might better help them quite a lot. So once I realized that, that it wasn't about me, it was about them. It became a lot easier. It actually became a hell of a lot easier to do speaking because I wasn't so um, focused on myself. This strategy that you're talking about is going to help so many people because what you're doing, you know, if we talk about performance anxiety um, or sometimes social anxiety, it's that really self-absorbed, self-focused attention. And, you know, it is the care factor. You want to make sure that you deliver really well. And and so that is the superpower of, uh, you know, wanting to deliver at a really high level. But yep. what will happen is the spotlight's internal. So, what um, what you're doing in that moment, turning that spotlight outwards and bringing it back to heart. And what I love specifically about what you said is you are taking it back to values and you're taking it back to purpose. And to use your words, helping people takes it right into that uh, heart connection. And, you know, when I was listening to you, that's exactly what I received. So clearly you're smashing that strategy. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I felt that heart connection and it was just brilliant. And the tools that you talk about are really, really helpful as well. I think once I realized that, that really helped a lot. And it helped not only with speaking, but it helped with writing too. I'm like, actually, this book isn't uh, that I wrote before. I go, this isn't so much about you telling a story. It's about a lot of people reading it who might get something really good out of it. And I think if that's if, if what you're doing does that, then it's, it's a good result for everyone. Absolutely right. You know, I get asked the question quite a lot about how do you do what you do in terms of helping people with anxiety or in high performance or as a keynote speaker. And it is very much taking it into that heart space around the connection and leveraging your own experience to help others can be very helpful, but ultimately bringing it back to heart and passion and purpose and strategy as well. 
You have had an incredibly fascinating life and it was such a joy to read your book. I read it. Honestly, it was a COVID book, I have to say. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for keeping me company through COVID, through my COVID bedridden experience. I should probably should rephrase those words, by the way. <laughs> your book kept me company, but it was great. I read it from cover to cover. Let's go back to some of these incredible life experiences that took you into deep, dark places. When you set out to write the book, what were you hoping to really deliver in terms of some of the key messages? Yeah, I think a lot of the military memoirs I'd read, and I'd been reading for a long time since I was a kid, really, a lot of them didn't touch on the part that I was most interested in. And, and that was kind of what does this combat or what does this fighting do to you as a person? Because you go in as one thing and you come out different. You've been marked by something. Uh, it, can, it can harm a lot of people and it helps people at the same time. So that to me was, in, was a really intriguing part of it. And a lot of them I read just, they kind of glossed over it a lot. And they, they weren't getting to the core of the issue that I was really interested in. And that was the impact it has on people. And so when I wrote mine, I thought this is what I'm going to try and use to differentiate it a bit is, you know, there'll be combat in it, but if you want a combat book, there, there are better ones than mine. But in terms of the impact it had on me, I was willing to go a bit deeper into that. And I think as, un as uncomfortable as that was, I think it was the most rewarding aspect. And I think it's the part that people will speak to me about most is, you know, we're glad you said this because if, if you can experience it as a trained soldier, then, you know, it's okay for me to have something bad if I witness an incident or I'm involved in a tragic accident, then it's okay for me to have these issues as well. And there is a way out of it. That's the important thing is, is there is a way to, to improve yourself and your quality of life. Yeah, super powerful. And, you know, recognizing that it is okay to not be okay and leaning into that vulnerability and giving people a real sense of you can get through hard things, you can do hard things and you can find that resilience in you. So for a bit of context, I'd love to hear more about what was the role that you were playing, you know, elite military engagements in the SAS. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was I joined the SAS in about 2004 as a young captain and I became a true commander there which is which means you're responsible for planning and leading and, and executing these these missions. We did a, a few missions in the Middle East initially, but then the harder ones we did were involved in, I guess, targeting missions in Afghanistan, which means we were going into really dangerous areas that no one else wanted to go to, to try and target Taliban leadership. So it was, it was pretty dangerous work. I mean, that's what I wanted to do my whole life. And I was excited. I was trained for it. And I guess the part I hadn't, I knew it was going to be hard psychologically, but until you're actually in that, you don't realize how, just how rough it can be. It's, it's humans aren't meant to engage in, in that. It's like you, the values you're taught as a young person to help people or, you know, not, not harm, look after everyone. Like that just goes out the window in a lot of cases in war, which is quite unsettling. So that's what I found hard about it. Absolutely right. Getting in there and doing stuff that we just have no comprehension of how to, to deal with some completely different paradigm and context and so you're in there you're fighting and there was some deeply traumatizing experiences what are some of the things that you went through there in your experience the first occasions were in combat in 2007 one of the first ones my patrol commander was shot and killed at a battle in the Trora Valley and it was just such a shock to me because I just that didn't happen to us we survived battles we did well you know no one got killed 
And then all of a sudden this happens and it just shook a lot of my, I guess, core assumptions that I had that we would be fine, that I would live a long life, that everyone around me would be fine as well. All that kind of went out the window and all of a sudden you're wondering, maybe you are going to have a short life, maybe you are going to see more of this and what's that going to mean for the rest of my life. So it was a lot to absorb in one incident and I think it changed a lot about how I viewed life. I think I realized how short it could be that I kind of made a promise to myself later. I'm like, if I do get through this, I'll make sure I really make the most of it. That's a really, really powerful lesson, right? And the that sort of out of horror out of trauma comes that deep reflection and how to make the most of your life. So incredibly helpful to be able to take it to there. I can imagine post-trauma, it must have been bloody tough. So what were some of the experiences, whether you call it PTSD or otherwise, that you might or might not have experienced? What was your personal experience going through these really traumatic life experiences? I know some changes in behavior that weren't that weren't uh, normal for me. So I was more socially withdrawn. I wouldn't. I didn't want to talk to people so much. Didn't want to socialize. Definitely was having trouble sleeping. I was having trouble concentrating, uh, and so and just trouble working as well, and trying to get through the grief of it all. I think those things combined really added up to you're not in a good place, you're not well, you're not operating at your best, um, you, your friends and family know that. And I think for a while I thought, maybe I'm losing my mind. But mm. once I did some homework into it and I spoke to professionals about it, they're like, no, no, this is what happens when you're exposed to trauma. Mm. Um, and there's a way out of it we can kind of correct things, we can rebalance things just with some basic interventions. And I think when I heard that, especially the science of it, I was like, oh, this makes sense. I'm not crazy, it's just... This is how the, the brain responds to trauma and you can get through it. 100%. And that's, you know, a really key message is not to suffer in silence when the right scientifically supported strategies can make such a powerful difference in an individual's life. And this is actually normal consequences post-trauma for individuals. So we've got to smash stigma and shame and help people to seek out the help that they so very much deserve. And I love that you are such a shining light in that space, Mark, helping so many people through sharing your story. So what were some of the strategies when you recognized it's time to do something, it's time to look after yourself, which is awesome that you did. What did you find particularly helpful in the tools and the techniques that the professionals around you shared with you? The hardest thing was for me was accepting responsibility for my recovery and admitting that I needed some help. I think once I did that, I was on the road to recovery. Mm. And that's kind of the hardest bit is just is taking some ownership for it. I think no one else could, like people can help you, but you've really got to be the one that takes the steps forward to, to recovery. So that was an important step. And then uh, I spoke to a neuroscientist um, from the army who just explained the science of, of trauma to me. And he goes, look, we can rebalance your mind with some interventions here. And we're going to focus a lot on diet, exercise and rest to try and get you, I guess, stabilized because you don't just have a mind on its own. It's part of a system. And your physical health is part of that system as well. So what he focused on the, holistically on, on my health as a person, not just my mental health, and that really helps. Mm. And then the other two components were kind of related to social connection and purpose. He goes, you know, with good social connection, you can really improve your mood. It means you don't suffer some of the um, cognitive decline that you can when you're lonely and not interacting with people. Mm. And he goes, and with a strong sense of purpose, and everyone knows this, that can 
be the thing that gets you out of bed and, and gets you working and makes you excited about life. Without that, it can be quite hard. 100% and such brilliant advice and, you know, bringing it back to the neuroscience and back to the logic of these strategies is very, very helpful just to normalize that. And what I love about these sorts of things is recognizing the mind-body connection and the holistic approach to mental health and well-being and high performance and enabling people to flourish and thrive. It's so built on these foundation stones, as you say, of eating well, doing exercise, reconnecting with people, with your tribe, whoever that might be. What did you find enabled you to push through? You know, when I'm working with people who are either in burnout, experienced trauma or low mood or depression and anxiety as well, sometimes people feel it feels like walking through sludge. It feels like the hardest thing to do. And the more you do it, the easier it gets, but it's just really breaking through that initial really tough stage. What got you through or who got you through? What got me through that was probably two things. One was fear. I was afraid of basically not this thing that I worked so hard to achieve, which is my life's dream. I was worried about losing it. It's probably not the best way to approach something like this is from a place of fear, but I was afraid enough to the point where I was, I made sure I was going to recover because I wanted to stay in that line of work. I didn't want to fall out. But I think a more positive driver um, for me was not fear. It was more the sense of purpose. It was the thought that like, if I don't recover, I'm not going to be able to go back and help my mates that are also in danger. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to be part of it. I wanted to help as well, as tough as it was the first time. So that for me was a really big driver in getting myself better so I could go back and keep, um, I guess, stay in the fight with my mates. Amazing. So leveraging that fear and not sitting in it, but being aware of it and standing up to it. You know, it's really core to moving from anxiety into action is exactly what you did. Amazing stuff there. And I'm really curious to know what led you, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by high performance. It really fascinates me, these next percenters that people lean into when you are the best in your game and you really smashed it to get into the SAS. But I'd love to know what led you there in the first place to join the SAS. What do you think that was? I wanted to be part of a really good team and I knew it would be hard to get into. I knew it would be a really good challenge. I knew I would have been so proud of myself if I had gotten into it. And I think that by putting the work for, for years and years and years and eventually pushing myself really hard for something I believed in, because you have to really want it because there's just so much pain involved in trying to get into the unit. Absolutely. You've got to really want it, you know, because in those dark moments when you're freezing, you haven't slept in two or three days and you haven't eaten, like no one's going to tell you to get up and, and go. You have to find it in yourself to do it. And that's the hardest part. But I just wanted to be a part of a team that I knew would be brilliant. I knew they did hostage rescue. It was bad. It wasn't as simple as that, but um, I like the thought of doing something for people that are in trouble. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. So, Mark, you've done some really phenomenal things this year to lead, to be a voice to help other people. And, you know, it's been such a privilege connecting with you and becoming mates this year through this incredible time in your life. Tell us a little bit about some of the very challenging things you have lent into this year. So my brother and I, when we were young, this is in the 80s in Perth, were victims of a sexual assault, basically. There was a kind of trusted extended family member that, that we were left with for a short period of time. This guy indecently assaulted us 
And my brother and I, we both knew about it, told my parents about it in the mid-90s, but decided not to do anything at that point. And then after I had my son and I saw the age he was, I kind of went back to it and went, no, no, we can't let this let this go. So I spoke to my brother about it and he was he was happy to go and take it to the police. So we did that. Mm-hmm. And after about kind of two years of developing the case, we went to trial this year and it was delayed quite a lot due to COVID. But we did do that. We went to trial and the uh, accused was found guilty. I think three counts of indecent assault and, and sent to jail. It was a weird thing to go back and revisit. It was really like confronting the boogeyman for yeah. me. I think it was something that I'd put aside and didn't think about. And I thought it hadn't really affected me. But then when I went back and we revisited it, I thought, no, no, this this was unfinished business and it had bothered me a lot. To turn around, I guess, to go to court and to explain the case to our peers and to have them believe us was a huge vindication. I think it, mm. it went a long way to, to closure. And the funny thing was, is that when we came out with this and we talked about it publicly with a couple of journalists, there were so many stories, so many stories that related not only to this guy that we mm. heard about separately, but to just other cases, especially young males. I think males aged kind of one to 17 have a really high likelihood of sexual assault in that in that window. So it was an unusual thing. I, I don't think I've I've ever done something like that before in my life, um, go to court over something like that. But after we did it, it was a huge thing to have finished, to have gone full circle on and to have brought a resolution to it was important. Absolutely incredible, incredible, courageous action leaning into that. That's almost, if not more, courage <laughs> if we're going to put judgment on it about if we talk about being in the SAS and doing these phenomenal things and how courageous is this incredible act that you have lent into and done and so, so tough. So what have you done to ensure that you're looking after yourself and you're trying to help with the healing going through some uh, really tough stuff in the court case? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was, I mean, I went back and tried to reconnect with everyone because I'd had such a busy year. I hadn't been in touch with my mates for a while. So I've gone back now and started reconnecting, reaching out to everyone and just checking in. And I think just that making sure that you're feeling that you're not alone. I think if you especially if you've got a family, you feel like you're working quite hard and you can get socially isolated. So I was trying to stay on top of that and, and stay in touch with everyone. That's probably the main thing I've done. Yeah, incredible. And you've got such a, a family that, you know, you're in it together. And so tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, I've got Sammy, my wife. She's on an expedition now in Nepal. She does a lot of similar stuff to, to me. She got me into corporate speaking, really. And she's a former lawyer and became an endurance athlete uh, against probably all odds. <laughs> and she's done a really great job of just inspiring a lot of people. She really works in like the uh, really the female empowerment space. She's got a her trails business, which is really a trail running community for for women that's run remotely. So that's been a, a huge success for her and she's really loving that. Um, and she's on the expedition now in Nepal. And you yep, just so came back from Nepal as well, right? I just came back. I, I went over to pick Harry up and I went up into the valley to, to go and find him and uh, you know, went through the monsoon and got bitten by a few leeches, but eventually got there. I mean, it's a dangerous area. She's she's going to be there for a while, but it's uh, it's super dangerous. But she's pretty tough. She's pretty smart, so she'll be she'll be fine. Harry Harry's four and a half years old. He's my son, and uh, he's just getting to that age now. He's he's such a little little man. His own independent 
guy. So I've had a lot of fun just spending time with him since yeah. the, the year's been over. How incredible. And so for, for individuals who are parents out there, any top tips? Because you've got this beautiful bond with Harry. I see how mindful you are, you know, when you're in the moment, you're just absolutely loving spending these precious times together. What would you love to share with people who are, who have kids out there? I think just the the thought that you, how valuable time is, like you're not going to get this time back. So do your work and try and do it as quickly as you can and then spend your time with your family because they're the things you, you're going to love and they're going to love it too. And yeah, I mean, they're growing up in a probably more complex world than we did. I think they'll have certain things that just weren't around then, like you know, social media and smartphones and different expectations. So I think just spending as much time with them as you can when they're young is, is a good investment. How beautiful. And be in the moment when you're in the moment. We're so busy. We live busy lives typically. And, you know, with kids, it's so incredible that it is those small moments. It's kind of quality, not necessarily even quantity that really builds impact and connection. You know, what I've seen of you, Mark, you do that really, really beautifully. Like you are super busy, but you absolutely indulge in those moments with your beautiful boy. And it's really wonderful to see. And on top of everything, you have just been involved in a movie. Boom to that. Tell us a little bit about this incredible um, experience that you've just <laughs> enjoyed. I would love to hear more about your, your movie experience. It's easy to find out what it is. I won't name it here, but I auditioned for a film through an agent and I thought of all the films franchises that were out there, this is one I really loved and uh, had always wanted to be a part of. So I auditioned for it probably, it was over a year ago, actually, it was before Survivor and uh, I wasn't expecting much and heard back from him, I think six months later, roughly, it was ages. And then then I chatted to the director um, virtually and his script writer. And they said, you know, we'll, we're building this world out a bit more and we're building some of the extra characters. So we'll come back to you soon. And then they came back with a character and an outline. I just had no, and, and a script as well. And I had a look at the script and I just had no idea what to expect. I had no frame of reference for this because I hadn't done anything like it before. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I was just reading it going, what do I have to do here? I think over the last two or three months, we've been filming uh, in Sydney and it was a really cool experience, really good fun. I met a lot of really good people and it was kind of a kid's dream just to be in that, in that world for a little bit. So mm-hmm. I loved it. I think it's going to take a long time for the film to come out and when it does, I'll, I'll be able to reveal kind of everything about it. Yeah, and you've, you've done some tasters on your socials. So from what I've seen, I, I assume those bits that you've shared on your social media are public knowledge. So who are some of the big names that you've been working alongside in this film? experience so there's been Anya Taylor-Joy and and Chris Hemsworth are the two probably lead actors and then there's a few supporting ones which are really Josh Hellman is one and um there's a few others too so they're probably the the main ones and there's a lot of Aussie actors that have kind of picked up and and brought in that were from the the previous franchise as well so so it it was pretty amazing to see it it was really cool yeah really cool and I love the production team and the director um just phenomenal phenomenal talent Tell us a little bit about Chris Hemsworth, working closely with Chris. And if we think about high performance and people being brilliant at their game, what were some of the standout qualities that you recognize in Chris and getting to know him a little bit better? Unfortunately, I didn't get to work with him. He was in a different gang to me. I was in like a separate tribe, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> I did see Anya Taylor-Joy quite a bit. And she, yeah. like I would watch 
the thing that surprised me about the actors is, excuse me, everyone has a certain, I guess, stereotype of, about how an actor is. A lot of them really surprised me. They were really kind of sensitive types that cared a lot about what they were doing and thought deeply about what they were doing down to the smallest gesture, down to what their eyes would do or the a flex of the fingers or the tiniest detail mattered a lot to them in terms of the storytelling. So the whole time I was there, I was watching how they would do their takes and how they would adjust their takes based on what the director said and there were such subtle changes they were making but when when you watch it on film it makes a huge difference to what's going on so yeah I really learned a lot and I learned that it's it's such a hard craft these people have been doing it for a long time they're very good at it you know I was kind of a fly by night edition <laughs> but yeah <laughs> well you got the gig um, so <laughs> what were the criteria that they were after for the audition what did you actually have to do for that audition there was a monologue there were four parts there was a monologue recital which was from a film called The Network and then they asked you to tell st- like tell a funny story there was a bit about the end of the world like how would you act what would you do if you had to survive for like the next five years I talked a bit about you know, you've got to have all the all stuff organized, but you've got to have hope. You've got to have this belief that you can survive and make the place, make the world a, a bit better or, or build a better world, I guess. Because if you don't have that, it's it's very hard to keep going. And I think think that's something that resonated with them because I think there's that that is a theme in some of the films is like the sense, the hope that you can do something better, you can leave or, or, or build something better. And you got the gig, so how good is that? So- <laughs> Great. Couldn't so- it. And if we're talking about, you know, high performance and thriving, I would love to know who in your experience, because you've worked with phenomenal people along the way, has been really inspiring for you, whether it's individuals or whether it's books that you've read or things that you've listened to or watched. What would be some of the things that really stand out in terms of inspiring you to achieve high performance and thrive? I mean, it's unusual, but there was a playlist on YouTube called Mateus M. And in it, he had these probably five minutes, six minute long, they were motivational videos really. And they were just clips of people from different keynotes, just talking about different parts of their life. And it was all cut to sport footage and that. And I started listening to this in when I lived in New York. I really loved it. I really loved listening to it. It was so inspiring. It was exciting. It was cut to good music. And uh, it was just good. It was really uplifting to listen to it was never cut out as a motivational type person but when i listened to that i was like oh, this is really cool yeah. and so i spent like a oh, would have been a long time listening to that and it was kind of encouraged i was encouraging myself almost subliminally to go and you know keep trying to do something that you're excited by and something you believe in so just little things like that can really help and there's a lot of good people in these fields i think there's quite a few veterans that have gone on and done something different whether it's a good podcast or written a good book i'm always watching to to see what other people are doing because try and uh support the community and cheer other people on and Mm. you know where i can because you know what it's like to leave the military and, and keep working and trying to find purpose it can be hard so when you left the military and to find purpose and so that took you overseas uh, to other places overseas what did you do in that chapter in your life you went to explore the corporate field tell us about that experience in your life I wanted to leave the army and go to business school in the US and I think part of that was if if I was going to leave the army I wanted to do it in a way that was going to be as helpful as possible and I think two years of full-time study would give me a chance to rest and I'd be retraining myself at the same time and it would open a whole lot of other doors in a different country. And so I had to work really hard to try and get the 
the results to get into business school. But when I did get it and I went over there, I found it was such a great, it really gave me another whole other world to look at that I had no idea about and had to retrain myself and learn new skills and meet new people and talk differently. And, you know, I had to give up some of the habits that I'd had built into me for so long. I think that just that change for me was was a positive thing. And I think I went to the corporate sector and, and I did consulting initially and, and startup work. And I think a lot of companies can be very good with people. I think a lot are indifferent to their workers. And I think that it's unfortunate. I think people don't realize the swap that they're making is that if you're swapping your, your life for income, which you need to do in some cases, mm. but in other cases, it's quite a bad swap. Uh, I think people undervalue their time. I think if you're in that situation and you, you're in a part of work that you don't really believe in, then start looking for something different. You don't have to leave your job, but just have something on the side that you're doing that you believe in. Uh, it doesn't matter what, like kind of like what you're doing. You're doing, you've done a book and you're doing a great podcast. Things like that are exciting and fun and different. And they, they make a real contribution. So your early life experiences and, um, you know, your, your relationship with your parents. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this and, and, you know, some of the things that happened, some of the tough stuff that happened, particularly with your mom. Yeah, I was lucky. I was just saying because it was a different kind of era in Australia. It was early 80s. I, I wasn't put in daycare. I was with my parents the whole time. Mum looked after us. We had all the aunties and uh, you know, uncles nearby. So we had a, a little tribe going in, in the towns we lived in, which was Newman in Western Australia and Perth. So I was lucky. I had a really good childhood and both my parents were present. Like dad didn't go away a lot for work. He, he didn't work long hours. He made sure he came home to us. And I think that's, it's hard to do as a parent. And I was lucky because I got that good foundation. So when I did go off to the army, I kind of had from having a fairly stable childhood, I think it just gives you that foundation you can build on um, that you really need. I think a lot of people don't get that. They get certain traumas at a young age that can really affect you later in life. So I felt really lucky for that. I mean, my mother got cancer and unfortunately died when she was only 50. And so I think I was in my early 20s at that point. Uh, I just joined the army and that kind of changed a lot for me as well. I instantly thought, well, I'm only going to have time 50 at best. So it kind of changed, it gave me a bit of urgency that I probably didn't have before. And I can remember my mum telling me, you know, I thought I had more time than this. And that really left a mark on me for sure. Yeah, that I can totally relate to that. My father passed away from cancer as well at a fairly young age. And it really does make you realize, make the most of your experiences and, and embrace life with passion and purpose. And there you were, such a, a young man and in the army. What sort of behavioral consequences do you have? Like you've got the positive stuff, but what about some of the perhaps challenging stuff and even self-sabotaging kind of behaviors, whether it's this point in your life or other times where some deep, tricky stuff happened? You said, you know, when you went into New York, you left some behaviors behind. I'm curious to know when there have been tough things going on for you, what are some of the behaviors that you recognize were potentially self-sabotaging behaviors? In not so much my mum's death, but later on when young guys I knew that had been killed, I think that that was, in a lot of ways, that was harder because they were taken well before their time. And looking back, I became a bit nihilistic, I think a bit self-destructive. I would drink a lot with my mates. I didn't really care about what happened to me. 
I expected that maybe we'd be killed overseas, you know, not even C30. I didn't, I didn't know. And I, to, to be honest, I didn't really care at that point. I don't know what that, how that response comes about, but I think it was just me struggling to, to deal with it. To be honest, I don't think I had the maturity at that point to really understand that this is a part of life that sometimes people do die young oh. and often the good, good people die young. And I think I just didn't understand that quite at that point. Oh. And I think as I got older, I think as I got in my thirties, I, I got a bit more not accepting of it, but I think you just, you're just not as naive about it at that point. Absolutely. You can get that distance and, and stand up to it more readily, even though it's tough doing that. Even uh, accept it, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now in this beautiful stage in your life as a dad and as an incredible partner and, and professional, but particularly as a dad, because I, you've got such a wonderful relationship with your son and he's in this incredible, impressionable age. If you could share some key messages with your beautiful boy and you could tell him anything, what are some positive and empowering messages you would love to deliver to him? The thing I'll tell him, I think the part that catches you out when you're young is you kind of not, you're insulated a bit from some of the hardships of life, and when you encounter them, it's this big shock of oh shit! I think you know I didn't realize people died, or I didn't realize that sometimes life isn't fair. I would ex- try and explain those realities to him and just go, look, none of this kind of matters. You're going to have to get on with life anyway. But I guess the point is try and choose something you really love, try and choose something you really believe in, because you can fail at something you don't really want. Choose something you do want. And, and do your best at that because I think that's where the real uh, rewards lie. And I think everyone wins. If you choose a field of endeavor that you really love and you're good at, the world gets the best of you and you get the best of the world. And I think people make that mistake of shoving themselves into a box that they think they should be in because that's what society says or their friends say, but they never wanted it to start with. And when they when it's time to make a change, they've lost a lot of time. So I think I'd make that point to him is like, just think a lot about what you want to do with your life because it's not long. You haven't got it for very long. So make sure you're, you're happy with what you're doing. Absolutely. Design your life. I can so relate to that. When you uh, do something that is really aligned to your heart, you, you, you jump out of bed in the morning. But that's fantastic. And for people who experience anxiety or who have had some mental health challenges, who are listening or watching, what would you love to share with individuals to help them through that journey to move from anxiety into um, resilient action? I would say to them exactly what you said to me, actually, when I was doing that keynote, which was there are scientifically backed interventions that can dramatically improve your symptoms and your quality of life really quickly. If you're having trouble, like don't tackle this stuff alone, get professional help and you can find yourself on a path to recovery much faster. And you're not going crazy. It's just the mind does this sometimes and there is a way to correct it. Yeah. Magnificent words. And Mark, I'd love to know in this incredible, busy, full life that you're existing in, where to from here? What is the next amazing chapter in your life and your passion? I'm trying to figure out whether I can do full-time writing. Uh, so I'm going to try a fiction book and see how that goes. And then if that works, great. I'll be, I'll be on my way. If not, well, I'll just stick at the keynote speaking and a few other things and, and spending time with my family. So I'm just trying to make sure I can find a good balance basically and, and go ahead with that. Fiction writing another notch in your belt. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Amazing, maybe. We'll amazing stuff. Well, it's been such an absolute joy speaking with you. And uh, getting to know you, it's a real privilege and uh, I love your work. So well done on having this heart that is enormous and sharing it with the world. 
And yeah, thanks for doing a deep dive and sharing some of your life experiences today. I've really loved it. Thanks for having me and, and love all the work you're doing with this. I think it's, it's super um, needed at this point in time for sure. Amazing. Take care. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Where To From Here. If you like what you've heard, be sure to click follow or subscribe for future episodes of Where To From Here via your podcast app. Leaving a review helps others find the podcast. And for more information, head to drjody.com.au or follow our socials at underscore drjody underscore.